Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics Podcast. My name is Mike Lewis. I am joined by Doug Battle. And while we are typically a sports analytics podcast, somehow I'm feeling we're moving rapidly to becoming a popular culture show. Um, how are you today, Doug? I'm doing well. Georgia lost the game to Florida on Saturday, but I'm hoping, you know, our uh, our quarterback, his nickname's The Mailman, and I'm hoping he delivered some late points that they have yet to count. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm doing well outside of the outcome of that game. Obviously, Mandalorian episode two was like weird in the most beautiful way. And uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I tested COVID negative this morning, so we're winning. Well, you know, let let let's start there. Um, it is one of those magical parts of fandom where. When your teams are struggling, and uh, I think we're both big college football guys. I think you're a bigger college football guy than me at this point, simply because your team has more success. My Illini are 0-3, which is almost equivalent to the Georgia Bulldogs having lost two games. (laughs) Right. And so it's it's one of those years... It's one of those years that fills character building, right? It's a character building year. Yeah, I'm going to... Situation. I have another podcast, Georgia Football Podcast, and talking about fandoms. I mean, the Georgia football fandom season's over, and we got half the season left, but season's over to the majority of the fans because Georgia lost two games um, and are essentially eliminated from the college football playoff. And so it's, I'm like looking at my notes and like, what do I do here? How do I keep people interested in, in Georgia football? It's crazy. These people are diehard fans and I get it like when your team's eliminated and your goal's a championship the rest of the season's like an exhibition yeah I mean I, I you follow some of this stuff more closely than I do um what is the what is the status are all the other bowl games going to play is um are some of them gonna play um I'll say this in a non-covid year I'm I'm very much anti-bowl game that's not that's not a playoff game. I'm all for expanding the playoffs, but I just like hate <laughs> exhibition football because um, your team's playing for like 15th place often. And it's, I don't know. I don't like it, but that's just me. But um, as of now, yeah, the latest I've seen is is they're having bowls. And in fact, they're not requiring a team to have won a certain amount of games to play in a bowl. So every team is bowl eligible this year. It's upward football. Well, given that, you know, it looks like Wisconsin might be playing like a three-game season this year. It's probably, um, it's probably, it's probably realistic, right? I mean, there's a right, a, yeah. I mean, I mean, even the, the what, what you're getting at is kind of a, an interesting aside in terms of the kind of the history of, of sports, where you know when they, when they moved to the college football playoff, they really did devalue just about the rest of the the bowl season. Maybe the most famous bowl game name was the Poolin Weed Eater Bowl, which may or may not even exist anymore. But I do think they transitioned it to all feeling like it was just really kind of these low-level marketing campaigns for some game that's played in, you know, Birmingham, Alabama between Memphis and Illinois. 
and, it, and in a way, it's it's kind of caught up with them. Where if it's not the college football playoff, it is it, the season's a bust. Now, I will say this: it really depends on your position mm-hmm. in the in the hierarchy, right? As an Illini fan, yeah. I think we went to the Red Box Bowl last year. That you know, it, standards really change, and we're just happy to get in that extra playing time, you know, post regular season, and maybe a little bit of hope for the future. Yeah, I mean, I get that. Being from Birmingham, when UAB makes a bowl game, it's like winning the Super Bowl. Um, but for, I, yeah, for fan bases like Georgia, it just doesn't. Nobody cares. Nobody. Uh, the, the two <laughs> games that mattered to Georgia fans were Florida and Alabama, and they lost both of them. So they're practically zero and two. Um, and I'm learning about fandom in that way, trying to um, find ways to engage a fan base that is probably just ready for the season to be over. So I had that loss on Saturday, but then Saturday night was really fun. Notre Dame Clemson. Uh, and I didn't get to watch the whole game, but I did get to watch the fourth quarter in both overtimes, which felt like a whole game. Um, I don't know if you caught it, Mike, but Clemson with their five-star freshman quarterback taking the reins for Trevor Lawrence and did an admirable job. Notre Dame playing at home. Their student section packed like sardines amidst a pandemic and ended up winning in double overtime. They stormed the field, and it was a coronavirus nightmare. It was uh, the Pearl Clutchers were having a field day with that one um, with I don't know how many thousand people all on the field celebrating together. But I know Brian Kelly um, had told his players before that game they were going to win the game and the fans were going to rush the field, and that the players needed to get off the field as quickly as possible because he can't afford to have half his team catch COVID. You know, absolutely. I, th- I mean, obviously, the um, it's an interesting story in a lot of ways, right? So Notre Dame's now number two in the poll. Clemson is number four in the poll. They've got likely another meeting down the lines. Now we can have the college football playoff. To, you know, when, when that really heats up, we can now have the endless debates of should the SEC get two teams in versus should the ACC get two teams in. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, you know, be, being out for that game, how meaningful is it? Should, should Notre Dame have even leapfrogged Clemson in, in, that, in that poll? Um, that's an unpopular opinion to even debate that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm with you. I come back to that. um, And and this might be something related to the difference in our ages. And, and look, I don't know how you perceive Notre Dame as a football program or as a fan base, but, you know, Notre Dame has always been sort of the, the most iconic college football brand. Yeah. And perhaps it's a position that's not, perhaps it's a position that's not deserved, right? That it's just that they've been out there for so long that it's just reflex. They say, oh, Notre Dame's the big dog. I I don't recall when the last period of prolonged dominance for Notre Dame was. But, you know, sometimes you see these signals, and I'll relate this back to Georgia in just a second. But if you're Notre Dame, you know, if if you're the New York Yankees or you're the Duke Blue Devils or or the you know the Los Angeles Lakers, should you be rushing the court, uh, <laughs> rushing the field yeah. when you beat when you beat Clemson? Right? It's like acting like you you've been there before. Um, <laughs> so, and obviously, the one that I was 
the one that I was alluding to was that infamous game where the Georgia fans all flew up or drove up to South Bend and turned that stadium uh, red. Yeah, <laughs> I was at that one, and I know it would seem like you would walk away from that thinking, wow, this is a weak fan base. Our fan base is so much better. Uh, but Notre Dame fans were nice. It was so weird because that year, it was my senior year in college, I went to every game, home and away. And so I was around and exposed to many fan bases, most of which were SEC fan bases. And uh, the treatment in, in <laughs> at Notre Dame was just totally different. It was like we were their guest. Everyone wanted to make sure you knew where the bathroom was and you knew <laughs> if you were trying to get to, cathed- to the cathedral how to get there. They wished you good luck at the game, uh, which Georgia had, and they probably regret wishing that. And then they came back to Athens in 2019, lost again, and I was riding on a bus back to our parking because parking is such a disaster in Athens after that game with some Notre Dame fans, and they were very gracious. And I was like, wow, this is the best fan base in football. They they get it. They have some perspective, <laughs> um, but they care about their team, and they believe in their history, and it's like a religion, but not to the point where, <laughs> where they mistreat others. And so um, I actually <laughs> I love to see Notre Dame thrive right now. They're number two in the country right now behind Alabama, by the way, which is wild. But, I mean, their playoff path is clear. They will likely play Clemson in the ACC championship. And I would definitely take Clemson in that game, but I would still take Notre Dame. I think the ACC is going to have two playoff teams this year. Um, I think it worked out that way. And (laughs) you look at the playoffs situation, uh, it's going to get really messy. You still got an undefeated BYU that just beat Boise State, undefeated Indiana, (laughs) Oregon is 1-0, Wisconsin is 1-0, uh, beyond that, I don't think there's any. T- I guess USC is one and zero, and if they were to keep winning, Liberty is seven and zero. So we're looking at a potential scenario where you got Alabama undefeated, Ohio State undefeated, Notre Dame and Clemson probably both one loss, um, and then a bunch of undefeateds that feel like, hey, we should have a shot in, and they've all played a different number of games against different levels of competition, and it is just a nightmare for the playoff committee it seems yeah no that'd be interesting it's like if there's multiple undefeateds and multiple one loss teams in the playoff would be a, a, a you know and it's one of my favorite topics but just the this idea that and we brought it up a couple of weeks ago I, I think i was talking about uh byu at the time just the idea that some of the teams are really not eligible to compete for the championship yet they are somehow still in the league. You know, you mentioned the um you mentioned the undefeated Indiana Hoosiers. Yeah. My favorite league so far this year <laughs> and you know, I've got a little bit of love of the chaos in me has got to be has got to be the Big 10 with Indiana who have they beaten Penn State who um, turns out to be Michigan. terrible. Penn State, Michigan. Yeah, all f- big football. Which program. one? Penn Penn State, yeah. Yeah. Um right. Well, I mean it, and that's that's the beauty of this chaos of this season, right? Uh, Penn State and Michigan were, uh, you know, I, I think I think Penn State was a top ten preseason, correct? Yeah, they um, which preseason polls utter collapse. I was talking to a friend about this yesterday. Preseason rankings skew everything because Georgia started the season with like a win over unranked Arkansas that felt ugly, and it turns out Arkansas is pretty good. 
and then a win over top 10 Auburn, who ends up being unranked, and then a win over top 15 Tennessee, who also ends up being unranked. And so then Georgia was like top three and thinking, oh, yeah, we're contenders, but it just turned out everyone we had played wasn't any good. I don't know. Preseason rankings are uh, very rarely accurate. I mean, LSU was top four or five. Well, and especially this year, probably even more chaotic with mm-hmm. you know the shortened timelines and weird bubbles and all sorts of restrictions. The other story from the Big Ten that I that I find fascinating is the collapse or the, the beginning to see the end of the Jim Harbaugh reign at Michigan. Yeah, it's felt like and, the and beginning. I don't know if of, he's officially on a on a hot seat. It's felt like the beginning of the end. His entire career at Michigan as a coach. <laughs> yeah. um, never really got things going. And every time where it starts to look like, oh, this could be their year to really contend, things uh, things go south. I said it on uh, yeah. on Savage Pads podcast a few weeks ago when we were making predictions for games. And I said, Mich- when Michigan was about to play Michigan State, and I said, Michigan loses games when people start believing in Michigan. <laughs> and that's what they did. They lost two straight. Um, since there were articles coming out saying, you know, is Michigan for real? You know, is this the year they make the playoff? Um, they might be back in a position where they're fortunate to make a bowl game. Well, and it's interesting given how much success Harbaugh had coaching in other places for it to somehow come to the to an end at, you know, really a program where he should be set up for massive success. You would think that would be the easiest program for him to be successful oh, yeah. at. And I think in terms of his coaching career, he's had by far the least success to the point where, you know, historically it was always Notre Dame, I'm sorry, uh, Ohio State and Michigan is the the class of the Big Ten. I suspect that, well, and, you know, I'll throw this back to you because I don't want to be clouded by the biases of age here, but what is the number two team in the Big Ten, Doug? Right now? Is it Michigan? No, it's definitely not Michigan. Well, just um, let's say just in terms of the, the class of the program, year in, year out. I, so, I I wonder, has Wisconsin? Wisconsin and Penn State. Penn State. I wonder. Yeah. yeah. Now we got Indiana football, Which is, football school. That's a hard one to get my head around. <laughs> you touched on something that's always been fascinating to me, which is when a coach who has success – in a situation that feels like it would be more difficult, gets more resources at a bigger school with a bigger brand and struggles. We've seen that. I see it in basketball all the time. You see these coaches have success at mid-majors, even in the tournament. Uh, Shaka Smart at VCU taking his teams to Final Fours and then going to Texas where they have NBA players almost every year. VCU rarely had an NBA player, and Texas has them every year. And they have yet to really have a top 10 or top 15 finish under Shaka Smart. Um, You saw that with Anthony Grant also from VCU when he went to Alabama, and people were thinking, okay, if this guy was taking VCU on tournament runs, he can at least get Alabama into the tournament. Never had any tournament success at Alabama. Um and was fired and then last year went to Dayton and, or I guess it wasn't his first year at Dayton, but was at Dayton last year and uh, had them playing top. I mean, they were going to be a number one seed in the tournament um, if there had been one pre COVID. So it's always fascinating to me when these coaches move from a lower resource, you look at 
Harbaugh at Stanford. I mean, think about the difficulties in having a top five team at Stanford where the academic requirements limit you as far as the caliber of athletes or, or I guess the volume of high caliber athletes you can bring in um, and going somewhere like Michigan where it's his alma mater, where they have more of a football history, um, where they're able to recruit the highest level of players and not having the same caliber of teams that he had at Stanford. Yeah, I mean, uh, 100%. You go from Stanford to, I mean, Michigan is, Michigan's almost always going to be football royalty, even if they've got some down years just by the nature of that that fan base, the size of that stadium, mm-hmm. right? It's it's a it's a revenue machine, and long term revenue is really what long term revenue is really what matters in terms of sports success at the college level. Being able to continually invest in in fixed in fixed programs. Yeah, I'll tell you another um, <clears throat> one more coach in college football that's like that is Tom Herman at Texas. Um, incredibly successful as an offensive coordinator for. Urban Meyer, both I know he finished at Ohio State on that team with uh, Cardell Jones and the the three quarterback team, <laughs> uh, Braxton Miller, JT Barrett, but he goes to Houston and has I believe a top ten finish at Houston and took the team from zero to hero in two or three seasons, and then he goes to Texas. So you look at going from Houston to Texas. And the the difference in resources that football program has, the history it has, the recruiting access, um, the brand name, and he's yet to to truly have the success that people anticipated. I know when he went to Texas, the expectation was there Texas and Oklahoma, one of those two teams will be in the playoff every year, and it's been Oklahoma every time. Uh, so another one where I, that's that whole phenomena has always been fascinating to me with head coaches i i think it is a good phenomena because when i and i have probably a tendency to look at it a little bit different just by the nature of what i do and how i've spent so many of the last few years because whenever i see these coaching changes at the end they're always just after the season or in the case of football usually they're in the period between the end of the regular season and the bowl games typically there's a about a I don't know, six to eight to maybe 10 names that are hot every year. And you can almost put all of those names into various flavors. And like we had the college basketball to this too. You know, one of the flavors is the guy that gets hot in the tournament, yeah. right? The guy yeah. from the mid-major that that breaks through. Um, and, and that's the same thing with the, you know, the, the guy that is coaching in a non-power five conference and they happen to go undefeated or 10 and one, right? And, and they're on the list. Then there, there's this other class of names who's like the, the slow and steady in the Missouri Valley where it's, you know, it's a legitimate level of competition. And this is a guy that's been going nine and three or 10 and two for a lot of years. And then there's the the sort of the gold standard assistant of coach K or coach Saban. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, yeah, you know, it'd be an interesting thing to sort of really dig into this and kind of a classic small numbers problem, but really dig into that and see how successful each of those flavors tends to be when they, it, cause, cause you're right. Part of the issue is they all get moved up to the next level where They've got more resources, right? But the question is, do they have more relative resources than than they used to have versus their day-to-day competition? 
Yeah. Uh, there's one other category of coach that fascinates me too, and that's the journeyman, the guy that's been there forever. And you look, you look at last year's championships in football alone, Andy Reid, who had been in the NFL for an eternity and always kind of been almost there, but not really there and, and kind of overlooked, I think. And I think if uh, for a lot of NFL fans, if your team was hiring prior to Andy Reid's stint in Kansas City and he was on the list, people would say, oh, we already know, you know, he doesn't have what it takes to win a championship. Um, but he learned over his career and, and he's accumulated a lot of knowledge and he's learned from his mistakes in the past. And at this point, I don't know if there's an NFL coach I would want more than Andy Reid. And then uh, in college football, Ed Orgeron, that's a guy who had bounced around, had gotten fired as head coach at Ole Miss, didn't keep the interim job at USC, had been a line coach a couple places, um, was interim coach after Les Miles was fired with mixed results and LSU hired him as head coach and there was not a ton of enthusiasm or optimism um, about him because he'd been around for a while you'd much rather get a guy like Tom Herman who's coming off or at least as a fan I'm saying many fans would rather have a guy like Tom Herman coming off a, a superstar offensive coordinator national championship stint followed by some major success maybe a top 15 finish at Houston and, and thinking, wow, what would he do with our resources? At Orgeron, you'd already seen him fail, um, but it turned out he, he learned much from his failures and grew from it and became a better coach, just like Andy Reid did in the NFL. I'll root for Coach O wherever he goes. I mean, there's nothing better than a Coach O uh, interview. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, it's like it's this best. character from... This character from the Water Boy, you know, <laughs> brought brought to life. I mean, there's yeah. nothing better than that guy. I know. I've kind of hated seeing them you know, have such a down. Perfect... Year. Perfect coach for the SEC. Yeah, the SEC yeah. coaching uh, <laughs> roster right now is phenomenal. When you just purely for meme content, I don't put Kirby Smart or Nick. Sa oh, well, Nick Saban has his moments, uh, but you look at Lane Kiffin. Oh, okay, can can I interrupt you just for a second because yeah. I want you to explain something to me, and probably to a lot of folks not sitting down here in SEC country. So one of these things going around the internet was the Florida coach, <laughs> and on the top of the, do you know what I'm talking about? And then yeah, on the oh bottom yeah. of the picture, he's dressed as Darth Vader at a press conference. Yeah. And on the top of the picture, he's naked, laying on top of a shark. Can you oh, give me a little context on that? Um, I haven't seen that. I, <laughs> or just I know pass. what it's just from okay. your description of it. I know that. Obviously, the Darth Vader was Dan Mullen showing up at his presser last week in a Darth Vader costume following a game where he essentially initiated a fight <laughs> um, that was highly controversial and then showed up at his presser in a Darth Vader costume, which was just hilarious. Um, and it's embarrassing that Georgia lost to him after that. Um, the shark thing was there were some kind of weird allegations with their former head coach um, about his potential relationship to a shark. I'll put it delicately. And it became a meme, and every time anybody played them, there was all this shark stuff. So I'm sure it, it's the photograph you described is definitely in reference to that. But it's a different head coach. That wasn't the MO. Well, and, and I'll let, let, let's say this. I mean, it's, um, it's ludicrous. And maybe when it's happening, 
it's it's not appreciated by either the the home or the opposing fan base. But after the fact, you know, it's a beautiful situation. I mean, it just adds so much to the uh, that craziness. Adds so much to the to the history of the league and sort of the the passion of the fans going going forward. I mean, that's uh, you know, you probably a lot. Of, you know, as a Georgia guy, though, you'd be too young for this. You know, every Georgia fan hated Coach Spurrier down yeah. at Florida. Oh yeah. But in hindsight, it's like you got to be glad that he existed because he brought so much passion and heat to that rivalry. Yeah, and even as um, even when he was at South Carolina, Coach Spurrier was a great fill-in because everyone would get uh, some extra energy from him throwing his headset on the yeah. ground and his visor. Um, so it's it's great to have a good villain. The one villain Georgia fans just don't like anymore. Or it's not that they don't like you. Obviously, never like the villain, but or just tired of it is Nick Saban because <laughs> that is a hurdle Georgia has not been able to get over. Um, and I think that goes for a lot of teams where it's like, okay, this isn't fun anymore. This isn't Batman and Joker. This is just like you playing your dad in basketball when you're like five, and he just keeps beating you, and you're like, you gotta let me win at some point, um, but he never does. Well. Let, let's go back to something you, you, you kind of started with today. You, you were talking a little bit about the Notre Dame fan bases being uh, these kind of really kind of beautiful, lovely, polite Midwesterners. Yes. Who, which fan base in the SEC is the worst in your mind, the most, uh, oh, the worst people, let's that say? That is a difficult question. Um, and I know you're, you're probably asking me to answer that with all my biases intact because I, I can try to remove those. Um, first. Uh, at this point, I'm, I'm off the clock. I'm just, just actually flat out curious. Yeah. I, like, I have ones that are my least favorite, uh, but that doesn't mean I think they're the worst people because I actually think they're some of the best people, <laughs> ironically. Uh, and it's part of what irritates me about them. That's all Um I mean, LSU probably has the reputation of, across like different teams that have had experiences in Baton Rouge or whatnot. Um, I've I've had some good experiences with LSU fans, but I think they're the ones with the reputation. But I I again I can't hate on LSU as long as Edo's there. No way. And I was a big Joe Burrow fan too. Okay, so as we move towards the end of uh, this week, um, I'll, I'll put it out there. I'll let you make the call. Do we want to revisit the the last week's election or perhaps the ongoing election, depending on how things are um, likely to proceed this week? Yeah, also depending on who you're talking to. Um, I'll say this. Really interesting election from purely from the standpoint of looking at the polls because initially – it looked like the polls were so far off that it was bizarre. And again, depending on how you look at it, of course, but the general uh, story is that the mail-in votes in some of those key states were counted last. So you got the majority of the Trump votes first and then the majority of the Biden votes last. And so of all the criticism uh, that that we gave to pollsters in those that first night, really, I don't know how far off the polls were from the the final uh, final counts as far as uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona. So it, it was kind of interesting to me at first. I tweeted out something about Trafalgar Group, and I think that Trafalgar Group's 
taking into account the shy Trump voter was really impressive and something that can be learned from by other pollsters. Um, but on the flip side, it's like maybe the initial polls projected the final outcome a little better than we thought. Well, you know, it's tough and it's like, I'm, I'm sort of trying to call, pull up the, pull up the numbers here, yeah. but I, I think, you know, perhaps both, both stories are, are true, right? Because I, I think the national average had Biden winning the, and you know, there's, there's too many polls to dig in state by state, but the national average had Biden up by seven or eight points, right? I mean, yeah. and I, and I think the popular vote ended up being about two to three points, mm-hmm. So there, there really is mm-hmm. something systematically, systematically wrong with the with the polling industry, and the you know the real question is what is the, you know what what is the underlying bias that is causing it to be to be off so far? Because yeah. you know one of the things that I heard um, in and and look, this is actually even for someone like myself kind of hard to dig into and really diagnose. One of the more telling comments I heard, and this is just said in passing, is that all the pollsters agreed on a voting model, essentially relatively early on. And, and what that gets at is essentially this model of who's going to show up, the percentage of Democrats, the percentage of Republicans, the the the, the number of women, the number of uh, different uh, minority and ethnic groups that are going to show up, and, and it's it's such an important thing that is given so little attention, right? Because if you think about the way polls work, they really can be a house of cards where once you decide on who you're going to survey, who's going to come out for the election. Well, that's really going to dictate what you get. It really is almost something where you need polls that are going to dig into who's going to vote yeah. and then polls that are going to dig into how they're going to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I'll say this, and, and this is, um, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, this is an incredibly tenuous time for, uh, you know, the reaction to the election, I think, is is potentially going to be we we may be in for another 4 years of acrimony just coming at it from the yeah. from the from the other direction right i i think a part a lot of what frustrates people about these polls is sort of a a gut feel for what is for what is happening and look i, I live in the world of academia and you know, academia, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say anything that should be considered controversial. Academia is very much kind of a one party system, right? Yeah. It's ninety percent uh Democrats or liberals. Uh the media is also a one party system, ninety percent Democrats or liberals. I, I think the pollsters kind of operate in that kind of universe. And so when you've got some sort of systematic bias while at the same time you've got you know, essentially only one group that gets to, you know, have a voice in the decisions, you're, you're just headed for trouble. And I mean, it's such a dumb example, but I, I keep finding myself coming back to, you know, here's a, here's a crazy situation. You imagine that football fan clubs in Georgia, somehow a rule is put in place that they have to have equal representation, okay? Okay. 
And then suddenly your Georgia Bulldog fan club is merged with the Georgia Tech fan club, right? You know, what what could go wrong in a way, right? And, and, and so then you start to go down the path where maybe only Georgia fans get to be in a position of leadership in that in that fan club. And you imagine how the the content goes, right? And I probably should have chosen a different. I, I should have had the merger between Auburn and Georgia, um, where the example then becomes, you know, who are they going to say is the greatest uh, the greatest running back in college football history when only either the Georgia folks or the Auburn folks kind of have a a voice in the conversation? And I think that's why you know all this stuff with the polls ends up being this kind of really. I don't know, lightning rod for uh, for these discussions. And uh, look, I, I mean, I'm fascinated to see this stuff play out in a lot of ways. I, I think we're in for, I, let, let's put it this way, I suspect 2020 has another curveball for us before this is all said and done. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. At this point, nothing in 2020 would surprise me. Um, I will say as far as the insinuation that that I often hear that pollsters try to make it look a certain way. I understand where that's coming from. I do think oftentimes uh, the the people talking about such things tend to come at it from one side. But it was especially interesting to me that Fox News polls, because I, I would try to keep up with Fox and CNN and try to see how they differed. And they were largely similar all throughout um, and clearly coming at it from, from different angles as far as what Fox you know, where they tend to lean and where CNN tends to lean or NBC tends to lean. And so to me, it was really interesting to see, um, you know, maybe this isn't a bias in the sense of trying to manipulate, but maybe it's it's more of an unconscious bias where uh, people are truly attempting to depict uh, the pulse of the nation, but somehow there's, there's something off where they're not, they're not quite detecting it accurately. Definitely could be a case of groupthink, right? I mean, so if you're a professional pollster and everyone is using the same voter turnout yeah. model, then you you probably do start to feel a little bit crazy. I, I think Rasmussen and this Trafalgar group mm-hmm. tended to be the the outliers in terms of the the polls that were published. And 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 look, I mean you you kind of see what happens right because those polls end up getting a little bit a little bit more heat a little bit more criticism in the in the lead up i mean you know that that trafalgar guy was all over uh, well he's, he was all over fox in yeah. a few days before the election and you know he's look he he was out there throwing fire back out there but you know he had to step across the line and kind of be an outcast from an, from his industry so that's a you know it's not an easy thing to do that people tend to people tend to overlook yeah yeah absolutely so from a getting back to fandom and and kind of how we always talk about sports the fandom implications of this election are interesting to me i've seen Honestly, we've talked about it for a while about how it feels like there's the Trump fandom and then the anti-Trump fandom and not really much of a Biden fandom. I've seen more of a Biden and and more of a Kamala Harris fandom uh, in recent days, whereas like I think defeating Trump or (laughs) coming across to defeat Trump at this point in time, um, depending on, you know, who you're talking to has generated that kind of enthusiasm and and that kind of, uh, 
accomplishment that sports fans get when they watch a, a team beat Alabama or beat the Patriots where it's, you know maybe some fans come out of that. So it's been interesting to see that. And then on the flip side with Trump, uh, you know, I kind of have an idea in my head of how I think that fandom takes things. But at this point, you're seeing a lot of defense and loyalty. Um, it's one of those deals where you could see a bandwagon fandom type effect where, you know, where they jump ship for the next guy in, in 2024 or whatnot. And so I don't know. Well, it's, why it's, do you think it's even a, why do you think it's even a next guy? I could see, I, I mean, now we're, 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 we're far afield from sports, but I, I like how you set this up because yeah. I do think in a lot of ways, this real, the sports fan analogy is the right way to look at it mm -hmm. because it is that kind of very similar level of passion mm -hmm. and this notion of well we we won or we lost or we've been cheated we've been cheated yeah uh, we've over we've overcome something mm -hmm. you know looking ahead Trump has he's got a fan base so what's he going to do with that yeah and, and it's like you look at it from these kind of first principles. Well, maybe Trump's going to create his own media platform. Yeah. <clears throat> and maybe he's going to essentially run for the 2024 office for the next. I mean, and again, look, I, I still will say that I, I suspect we've got another another bump in the road <laughs> or something else interesting happening. Right. But assuming that Biden is sworn in in January, that maybe Trump runs for office for the next four, you know, attacks for two years and then runs for two years. Yeah, and I mean, the Trump family, you know, you got Trump Jr., Eric Trump, uh, Ivanka Trump, and then Barron Trump down the line. <laughs> and so that fandom, <laughs> as far as as far as far capitalizing on that fandom, you know, we could see um, potentially the Trump faction of the Republican Party attempt to um, capitalize on what they've built through Donald Trump and and pass it down um, to to you know if anyone else in that family has an interest in in a career in politics, so it's it's interesting to me from that standpoint because there's also the standpoint of like when a team like the the Golden State Warriors, what happened to all their fans this year? You know, I used to know everybody, every other basketball fan I knew was a Golden State Warriors fan, and you know, now some of them pull for the Nets with Kevin Durant, some of them pull some of them pull for the Warriors, some of them pull for. Uh, just whoever, you know? And so it's like, do now that Trump has lost, and he, like you said, um, come January, if Trump has, has lost and Biden has sworn in, um, does some of that fandom start to to question his methods and, and um, go elsewhere with their enthusiasm? Well, we will keep watching. Uh, so to wrap up this week, anything you're rooting for this week? You want to say go dogs yet again or something different? <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm a dog till I die. Go dogs, win or lose. Uh, we got Mizzou this week and it feels like it could be a, a win. And I'm kind of like, does it matter? I don't know. But go dogs. Also, um, go baby Yoda. Okay. And I'll say this. Uh, well, two points real quick. Uh, I am now watching The Mandalorian. I am going to catch up with you, and we will do a special episode on yes. Mandalorian slash Star Wars fandom. And Fantastic. the team I'm rooting for at the moment, and this this hurts my soul to even do it, being an Illinois guy, but loving the chaos of college football, you know, I'm going to root for the Indiana Hoosiers. Let's keep go this Hoosiers, rolling. Let's, go, let's get weird here in the Big Ten. I like it.